welcome to Healthy Conversations, an eHealthSpace.org podcast. This week we speak with Dr. Jenny May, Chair of the National Rural Health Alliance. In this week's podcast, we discuss with Dr. May the importance of health reform, the challenges facing clinicians working in rural and remote areas, and the opportunities that eHealth opens up to clinicians working in those areas. Dr. Jenny May, thanks for joining us. Firstly, I'd love it if you could give us a quick overview of your work and the different responsibilities you've got, because there are quite a few, aren't there? Yeah, look, I'm in a lucky position in in a sense. I'm a clinician and I work in Hamworth in northern New South Wales, and I've also got an appointment um, to the University of Newcastle at our University Department of Rural Health Rural Clinical School. So I'm fortunate to get the opportunity to teach medical students and to teach GP registrars and be involved, I guess, in in that gamut of, of teaching and supporting clinicians. But one of the other hats that I wear currently is I'm chair of the National Rural Health Alliance. And that's an organisation of 30 national bodies or parts of national bodies that have are vitally interested in rural health. Hmm. And, and it's a really interesting mix because you've got, obviously, your professional bodies, and I represent Rural Doctors Association on that. And there are, you know, a number of nursing organisations such as CRANA and the Australian Nursing Federation and large numbers of allied health professionals, ambulance, optometry. But to balance us, if you like, we have um, consumers. So we've got the Country Women's Association. We've got Health Consumers of Rural and Remote Australia, Isolated Patients Association, people who are, can really give us, uh, if you like, a consumer view of things. And then we've got some other health service providers, people like RFDS, people like Frontier Services, Catholic Health Australia, people who, whose business, if you like, is is to provide service in rural and remote Australia. So it's an interesting body. Um, and we do, or, or we talk, I guess, on behalf of those bodies for the things that, that we can agree and have consensus about. Okay, so what's been your vision behind getting involved in these sorts of things? Much is made of the, the, the country and city divide. Is it is it driven around that sense of, you know, there are particular issues in country life that are being uh, either neglected or we need to sort of um, think about in a different way? What, what's the what's the vision? Oh, I think you're you're absolutely right. That that was the beginning of it. Um, it what we see with with e health and e technologies, if you like, is an opportunity to to bridge the divide and the divide not only in terms of of health service delivery but also in terms of of access to health information and, and I guess um, even more widely to livability of com- communities. So if you turn it on its head, if we don't get access to high-speed broadband and all that it offers in rural and regional communities, the divide between city and country in terms of access to all services is going to be um, widened. Hmm. So it's vital that we get very adequate technology, if you like, into rural and regional so that there is, you know, a baseline of or a platform of, of service delivery that's the same. I'd love to talk about e-health a little bit more and, and broadband and the PCEHR in a moment, but, you know, your comment there makes me think about some of the broader issues or the macro issues, if you like, in, in country Australia. Um, for example, a lot of smaller towns effectively dying out, aren't they? Indeed. What, what, yeah, what are some of the issues? I know you're in, in Tamworth, which is quite a large regional centre. I don't think has these pressures, but... Can you kind of give us a quick sketch of the the big issues that are happening in in some of these townships and the communities? Sure. Are we seeing sort of a real contraction away from rural living? So we are seeing a, a real 
patchwork, if you like, in rural communities, Mark. So so we do have a contraction of the towns less than 1,000. So some of those smaller towns are um, contracting. We're seeing an increase in population in our regional centres, particularly our inland regional centres. We're seeing a huge amount of growth in rural and regional areas on the coast. And inland, we're getting growth where there is mining or um, increases in certain agricultural pursuits. So so we've got this very uneven picture in rural Australia. But I think it's very fair to say that, that the small town um, is, is in many ways fading to the medium-sized um, medium communities um, mm. and therefore access to, to health, education and and services like policing, for instance, in some of our very small communities is, is very much under threat. And how fast is that happening? I, I think we have varying reports, like, for example, Coffs Harbour and that whole region has been talked about as a very high growth area. Um, how fast are some of the changes happening in the inland areas? They're not perhaps happening uh, because uh, and many of these communities are ageing and ageing rapidly, the loss of population is probably slower than the growth that we're seeing on the coast. Now, I'm not a geographer, but certainly my observation is that that what we're seeing is the ageing of those communities and therefore a, a gradual dying out. Mm. And, and, and in terms of, of need for health services, I think that's important. So, so that these communities will have very high need for primary care services in the short run. Right. And sketch for us... The, the major health issues that you're seeing. There are lots of stereotypes about people in the country regarding drinking and, uh, you know, poor habits and so forth. Um, is, is that overstated or is it a, a fairly well-documented Look, I think um, that's true. I think, I think there are positives and negatives about living in the country. I think um, what we know is that health outcomes are poorer and part of that is due to access and part of that is due to a high rate of risk factors in rural areas, and you alluded to some of those in terms of smoking, drinking, physical exercise. Believe it or not, people embark in general on less physical exercise in rural areas than they do in in the city, which for some might be surprising. That's really surprising. Well, it is. It's not like you've got a shortage of um, open space. That's right. (laughs) And and part of it is the mechanisation of farming, that, that our farmers used to be very physically active, but now may spend 12 hours a day in an in, in an air-conditioned cab, for instance. And it's also that within some of our smaller towns, infrastructure in terms of walking tracks or, or walking groups and, and other ways in which people engage around physical exercise are not nearly as plentiful. Hmm. So we know that those risk factors, if you like, are higher. And there are risk factors, for instance, in terms of, of distances travelled and higher rates of motor vehicle accidents, for instance. Um, we've also got, uh, as, as a flip side to that, we've, we've also got that poorer access. Mm. So, for instance, the Alliance did some work that showed that there was a $2.1 billion underspend in primary care services in rural areas. Mm. That's a huge lack of availability, if you like, in financial terms of services that the same population living in a, in a city area would have access to. So what's been the major cause, do you think, of that? Is, are we talking politics here? I think we're talking a number of things. I think we're talking politics Certainly, rural, you know, depending on what definition you use, rural and regional Australia comprises about 30% of Australia's population. So we're a minority. I'd say to you a sizable minority, but 
but certainly a minority. I think there has been, over the years, complacency about access to country services. That's probably due to the fact that many country areas were safe seats and therefore perhaps didn't have the attention that we see in terms of marginal electorates, particularly in the last 15 to 20 years. So I think there is a political component to it. And I think the third thing is workforce. But for, for many reasons, we have real trouble attracting workforce into rural and regional areas, and workforce is the gateway to access. Hmm. So without it, obviously, the yeah. the capacity to provide access is limited. So the federal budget was an interesting one. Uh, there was $20 billion in funding announced for new hospitals, but curiously enough, $1.8 billion for regional hospitals. What was your reaction to that? Well, that was part of the agreement that the rural independents struck with the Gillard minority government. So that is that is money that the incoming or potential government agreed that they would focus and spend in rural and regional Australia. And I guess that's where the real politics has occurred, that despite being only 30% of the population, there has been some leverage in the last 18 months, if you get if you like, to put, to really shine a spotlight on, on what are some very decaying rural services that need a disproportionate amount of funding. And that's what we're seeing. And you, you talk about leverage. I mean, I, I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a politics junkie, but um, I, I note that it's really the independents who've been turning things around, haven't they? And I, and I also note that you've become something of a fan of Tony Windsor, I understand. Well, I live in Tony Windsor's electorate. Right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, I mean, I have to say that I think the rural independents experience in terms of healthcare is a lived experience. They understand the lack of access that that people who live, for instance, in our community experience in terms of accessing dental services, in accessing primary mental and medical services. So so it's a lived experience. It's Mm. not something one needs to tell them about. They know that this needs an injection of capital and it needs uh, an approach that will actually deliver sustainable health services in, in the long term. So, mm. so it wasn't difficult um, to persuade them of these things when, when it is their, their and their family's uh, lived experience. So is there a sense that we really have to sort of make hay while the sun shines? Let's just say that the Gillard government runs for another, you know, the, their term, three years or so. Um, do you think there's a sense that the independents have really got to try and get as much money going if we revert to the, some form of majority either way? I see it in terms of values, Mark. Do we as a society, as a country, want to provide some sort of equivalence in terms of healthcare access to all our citizens? And if we do, that is going to require a continuing investment in funding for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, for instance, for marginalised groups and for those who live in rural and remote areas. So I would hope that this period of, of having a spotlight on on rural and regional affairs will will equip us to make those long-term decisions, um, enshrining, I guess, that sense of equivalence in, in ongoing decision-making, no matter what party it is. Well, let's talk about e-health then. And uh, I was having a look actually on the website. The Alliance had a uh, position paper back in July 2009 talking about e-health and it being the right direction forward. We have come a long way even since then. We sure have. <laughs> what are your thoughts about it right now, particularly in the context of the second wave sites? We're, we're actually seeing some progress, aren't we? Look, we are seeing some progress and um, we're delighted to see it. I think certainly as a clinician, we're moving from, 
from the sort of panacea view of e-health to actually thinking very hard about operationalising it. And I guess that's the huge step that we're we're embarking on. And whereas it, in 2009, it was very much a visionary thing that it's where we wanted to go and one of the modalities, one of the modalities to improve rural and regional health, not the only way forward, but, but a very complementary strategy. Now we're actually having to, to think about it in terms of Tintac, what, what services are best provided, what what mechanisms can we use? You know, what are the what is the framework in which this is going to operate? So, so it is a very different scenario than than even as a, you know, eighteen two months two years ago. That's right, and, and particularly as the NBN is rolled out, um, I'm wondering if we could maybe speak about it from your perspective as a GP. Just how revolutionary do you think this is? Look, I am very excited at, at about about what will change, and I'm very positive about the NBN. But I'll say one of the reasons I'm positive about the role of the NBN is is actually wider than my doctor's surgery. It's that my children are much more likely to return to rural areas. They grew up in quite remote communities, in Tom Price in Western Australia, for instance. And I think they're much more likely to come back and, and be part of a rural community if they've got access to high-speed broadband. So thinking about the livability and sustainability of rural communities, the NBN is pivotal to that platform for not only providing a, you know, a good and sensible workspace for doctors, for instance, but to actually make towns functional and attractive um, mm. to this younger generation who are not going to go anywhere without it. You're absolutely right. It's this idea that you're out back and offline. Yeah, and and we've, you know, I teach students. Medical students will not go where there is no internet. They will, you know, they will do everything to get out of it because for them. You know, minute by minute, day by day connection is absolutely vital. Yeah. And as I said, I see it in my own children. And I, I do not think that a, a non-connected um, town is going to move forward. I just can't see it. So what are you looking forward to? What are the, the main hurdles or points in time that you're thinking about? Clearly, we want to see some of the, the NBN connection points starting to, yep. um, to roll out. And in fact, I think the New England is one of those areas. Well, it is. It is. And Armidale and West Kiama are the two first rollout sites in New South Wales. Mm. And that is no accident. Again, if you look in the agreement that the independents struck with the minority Gillard government, it was that the NBN would be preferentially rolled out where it was needed most, as opposed to starting perhaps with a more easier site in, in the major capital cities. So, so that's really important to us, that, that these things occur in a timely fashion. I mean, what is it about broadband that I'm excited about? Well, I'm really excited and hopeful that it will be universal. So I will be able to make connection with the Kimberley. I will be able to make connection with small towns that, as opposed to a very market-based approach to high-speed broadband, that we will get fairly universal, reasonably high-speed access to most locations. So that's what I'm pleased about. I hope it'll be affordable. I really hope it'll be affordable. Obviously, we've got an agreement for a wholesale... Yep you know, flat price, and we've we've got to hope that, that the sorts of modalities that are required will be affordable both to consumers um, and also to obviously people like GPs and, and service providers so that so that cost is not going to be the thing that, that demarcates health access. And are there any clouds on the horizons for you? I think there are areas that we continue to affirm as really important because I don't want to see them lost in the discussion. And I think 
that that universality, as I said, is critical, and I think the the affordability is also critical. And I think there is potential for those to be lost as part of what is a, is such a huge huge project, and it's something that the timeline will be over at least this term of government, probably the next one, and maybe the one after. So, so there are. I mean, obviously, a change of government is a is a potential threat to the way that it's been laid out. Hmm. Um, so it's a matter, I guess, of of um, being really upfront with everybody that those, from from our perspective, looking rurally, that those are really important. Just lastly, that I think leads quite well to the academic side of your work. Give me a sense of the speed at which you think GPs across the country are coming up to speed or coming to terms with these changes because it strikes me that there's also a large education component that we need to be rolling out simultaneously, isn't there? Mark, I, I, can't, I can't agree more. Yeah. Now, the other thing you've got to remember is that the average age of GPs is 46, mm. all right? So, so these That's about the age they decide they don't like technology well, anymore, isn't it? Well, they're GPs that didn't grow up with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we do have, a, you know, a, a, a thought to be a tsunami of young medical graduates, and this is exciting, but at the moment, in terms of clinicians, half our clinicians are, are greater than 46. So we need to keep that in mind because the take-up of technology is going to be much slower in that particular group. Yeah. From teaching point of view, we've been using video conferencing and ICN lines, obviously, for many years. And, and so for academic institutions and for teaching and for students, this technology will be easily embraced. Hmm. But we will need to have a very concerted and solid education campaign to bring MBN and, and well, you know, high-speed broadband, video conferencing, store and forward, um, different ways of education, for instance, through to the clinical interface. And it's absolutely core that they are brought forward in a way that fits with the current workflow or clinic, of clinical activity. Yeah. It is not possible for people to relearn completely the way that they do business. And they do, in general practice, I believe we do business very efficiently. I know there's no single bullet for solving that particular problem, but uh, do you have a sense of the best way that the industry should move forward around encouraging people to become engaged in the online world? I've got some thoughts, Mark. Um, they're not evidence-based. They're, they're my thoughts. I, I think the concept of, of supporting both the actual facility as well as the clinician is important because clinicians do not have the time available to sit there and, and work out all the bugs. So there needs to be other people in the facilities, be they general practices, be they aged care facilities, be they multi-purpose services, the, the Aboriginal medical services, whose job it is to get the technology up and to maintain it. Hmm. And I see that as absolutely crucial. I do not think that you will get wide take-up of, for instance, video consulting until we have people responsible within the facilities in which um, clinicians work that for, for whom that is a major responsibility. Yeah, it's one of the truisms of technology, which is that it will break, probably at the worst time. Well, so. I just know anecdotally from my own experience working here in a UDRH rural clinical school, we lost 50% of our video conferences until we employed an IT officer. Yeah. We lose none. Now, if she is here, then then, and, you know, just even knowing she's here to hold my hand yep. improves my likelihood of taking up the technology and, 
and attempting to do things by video conference as opposed to teleconferencing. And probably improves your sanity levels as well, I think. <laughs> I, I could not have done it without her. And and I guess it's that experience that makes me so sure yeah. that that it is expanding the capacity within health facilities for ownership, maintenance and IT preparedness that will be crucial to this to this change in the way we work. Yeah, it's probably a good note to end on. I think you can have all the technology in the world, but if you don't have the right people on the ground, it won't work. Indeed. And and that's <laughs> got implications for every small town. Yeah. So so it's also got implications in terms of how we train people to do that. Yeah. Well, Jenny May, I think our time is up. So thank you so much for being our guest on the eHealth Space podcast. It's been great to talk to you. No worries, mate. Talk to you again another time. Okay, take care. Thanks for joining us on Healthy Conversations. Check us out on the web where you can also join the conversation or leave a comment on today's show. You'll find us at ehealthspace.org slash multimedia or search for eHealthspace on the iTunes store.